Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? I'm, uh, again, my name's Arnold, and I'm, uh, I get to walk us through today's passage. I feel incredibly uh, grateful to be here with you all um, in person and those of you online. Um, as we open up God's Word, He has a blessing for us uh, whenever we do that, so uh, we're going to do that. And I'm just going to kind of dive right in here into the text. Um, this is such an incredible text. I've loved studying it. Um, uh, the last few weeks, we've been in the Gospel of John, and, uh, and we've taken our time here in this first chapter, and we've seen that, that, the, that John, the writer, is, he's got a purpose for writing this Gospel. And that purpose is that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we might have life, right? So John's coming with this very particular purpose. And so he's writing this account of Jesus' life, and at this particular moment, he begins to include this testimony of a guy named John the Baptist. So John the Apostle is writing about a guy named John the Baptist. They're not the same people, just to clear that up real quick. And he is got, he's got a very particular purpose for this, and the purpose for this is what I want to talk about today. So what I want us to know uh, by the end of today is... Why is the testimony of John the Baptist important to the story of Jesus, okay? And then what this testimony of John the Baptist means for them and for us. And so in order to do that, um, we're going to have to do a little bit of work. And the reason for that is because much of this text, uh, it's just, it's full of words that don't really mean much to our modern ears because they're Jewish. They're very Jewish. So when the, and the reason for that is because Jesus didn't just come shoot down from outer space like an like a alien Superman. He was born into a very specific Jewish community. He was born, he put on the word of God when he was, when he put on flesh, it was Jewish flesh and in a Jewish culture. And at a specific time and a specific place in history. And so it's important to sort of understand where they're coming, where, where this story is um, happening in the context of it so that we can get the, the most out of it. So we're going to get into a little bit of the history of the people of Israel. And here's why that's important. I need us to know this today. Um, Jesus is not some magical, supernatural, uh, generic kind of superhero. He is um, actually the fulfillment and the climax of the story of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment and the climax of the story of Israel. Certainly he is more than that, but he is not less than that. All right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some 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 nation of Israel history, <laughs> and I hope you guys are down for that. Any fun, is that sound fun to anybody? Okay. For those of you who uh, gave me a, uh, a pity clap, thank you. Um, we're going to pray, and we're going to hope, hope that God blesses this time together. All right, let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, I just thank you uh, that you are good. I pray that you would help me to be clear here this morning. I pray, God, that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have us from your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get to it. We're going to talk about three episodes in the history of, of Israel. Three episodes, okay? They are the exodus, the exile, 
and the promise of the day of the Lord. The exodus, the exile, the promise of the day of the Lord, okay? And these are very important. So let's, let's get started. The first one, the exodus. If you're not familiar with that story, the people of Israel were slaves. They were enslaved in Egypt, and they did not like being slaves. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said, God, rescue us. And God hears them because he is a God who's compassionate. And he says, I'm going to act here. And so he begins to act, and he sends, these, this, this, uh, he sends a prophet by the name of Moses to lead them. Okay? And he starts sending these plagues through Moses, these plagues that, that affect not just Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, but all of Egypt. And this is meant to loosen Pharaoh's grip on his slaves. But it doesn't. It actually hardens him, and his heart grows harder. And so God says, okay, I'm going to act. And when he acts, we're going to see whenever God acts, he brings judgment and salvation. If he brings salvation, he's bringing judgment. If he brings judgment, he's bringing salvation. But they're always together. And that is very important as we explore this in the next bit to understand. All right, so the first thing he does is he says, okay, Israel, you need to kill an, a lamb, a young lamb. And you need to take its blood and you need to spread it. You need to paint it across your doorpost. And so God's spirit goes through the land of Egypt and kills all the firstborns of the land. Very brutal, very, very brutal scene. But for all the people who had the, the blood of the lamb painted across the doorpost, they were spared. If they had not painted the blood of the lamb across the doorpost, they would have not been spared. So God, in this place, in this act, he judges Egypt. And he saves his people, Israel. This is the only thing that gets Pharaoh to loosen his grip on his slaves. And so Pharaoh reluctantly lets them leave. And they begin to leave. And they're, they're running away from Egypt. But does Pharaoh, uh, is he done? He's not. So Pharaoh's not done. He actually gives chase. He gets his army. He's like, nope, I changed my mind. I'm going, I don't care life or death, I'm, I'm, I will not stop. I, I'm, I'm going to get them back. So Israel is not, no, is not safe. So he, gives, he chases them and he traps them up against a body of water called the Red Sea. And God again acts. He does a miracle. He sends a wind that separates the sea and Israel goes through the middle of the sea safely to the other side. But are they safe yet? No, they're not. Because, because Egypt, Pharaoh and Egypt, they, they go through just like Israel did. But before they get to the other side, God closes the waters on them. And Pharaoh, not just Pharaoh and his greedy heart, but all of his army is drowned in the sea. Brutal. Brutal. God brings judgment 
even as he saves. Finally, finally, Israel is safe. Finally. And at the end of that, they sing a song, and I'm going to put the first stanza of that song up here because I want to read it. And it's from Exodus chapter 15, and it says this, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has, he has thrown into the sea. That's, that's Pharaoh's army, thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. This great act that has been done for all of the people is now my strength, my song, my salvation, the word he uses here, my salvation. Wonderful. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This last verse, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You see, Israel needed a God who was powerful enough to deliver the only way that deliverance came was by the judgment of Israel's enemies. The reason why I've spent so much time on this story here is because this story is central to the story of Israel. It's so central, in fact, that every year since then, Jews celebrate the, this episode by celebrating the Passover, which is talking, which uh, celebrates that God passed over them and judged Egypt. All right, so this is a fascinating concept and story to build a culture around, but this is central to their story. In fact, um, they, had a, they, have, they, have a, they had a practice, and it went like this. If you were a non-Jew and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to participate in the ritual of baptism in which you were passed through the water so that you can identify with the people of Israel who passed through the water at the Exodus, okay? This is, this is immense in the story of Israel. All right, got it? Let's move on. I'm going to be a little bit quicker now. The pace is going to pick up a little bit. So God, after the Red Sea, God sends his spirit to guide his people in the wilderness into the land that he promised them. And when he got there, and when they got there, there were people living there. And so God used Israel to judge the people there because they were wicked. And he dispersed them, and now Israel has a home. And we may at this point begin to wonder, well, how convenient it is for Israel that God judges they're wicked enemies. How convenient. Well, that's where the story, this is where the story now gets juicy here. This is where the story gets juicy. Because the next episode in the history of Jesus, we see that Israel becomes the wicked ones. Okay? So, God had given them a law in the wilderness, a law that reflects his character. It says, don't commit adultery, because I am a God who's faithful don't steal because I am a God who's generous. Don't worship other gods because I am the one who cares for you. I and I alone. And Israel rejects God's law and they become wicked and perverted. In fact, they bring child sacrifice back into it. So it had been abolished when Israel conquered the land. Now they're bringing it back. Child sacrifice, imagine that. Brutal. This is a wicked, wicked the ones who were supposed to be the cared for by God, God comes in and says, you know what? 
The problem is not out there. The problem is, is in here. The problem is in here. And so he allows Israel to be conquered by Babylon. And Babylon destroys them and sends them and, as slaves into exile. Israel's no longer free. And so in the first instance where God judges the enemies and saves Israel, God judges Israel and saves Israel. How does he save them? He saves them from being utterly corrupted. Yeah? He saves them from being utterly corrupted. He's communicating. I am not a God who plays favorites here. I don't have a favorite. I am a just God, a holy God. I am a fair God. And here, my people, I care more about your heart than I care about your comfort. And so they're exiled. <clears throat> and when they're in exile, God sends a prophet named Isaiah. And he, uh, he speaks these words to Israel. And I'm going to read them. Isaiah 40, chapter 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. These are the words that John the Baptist uses in today's passage. And then uh, God shifts and he says, I'm gonna do another act. And he gives a little bit of a hint here. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what do we see here? We see God promising to act. To make crooked things straight. To make things right again. With echoes of this sort of new creation. He's going to form something. And this time, all of flesh is going to see it. This isn't just going to be for Israel to see. This is be, going to be something that everyone is going to be able to see. Wonderful, isn't it? All right, let's move very quickly to the next one. The, day, the coming day of the Lord. The book of Malachi gives a little bit more detail about this coming promise. And I want to just sort of, I'm going to put the text up here, but I'm going to skip through um, I'm going to skip through uh, a lot of it, so you're going to have to bear with me, all right? So, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger. Again, this links to the Isaiah passage. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay? So, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God's going to send a messenger with the authority and power and presence of God himself. And he is going to do this mighty work, okay? Verse 2, this is, the, this is the tough part. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Skip down to verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Hmm. It sounds like God's maybe working an exile moment, like the problems in here, right? But then he goes on to say in chapter 4, I'm going to read, um, I'm gonna read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That means it's not going to grow back. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Here we see a more exodus moment. He's going to defeat my enemies. Is it going to be exile or is it going to be exodus? Right? And so all of this is in play when we come to our passage today. John the Baptist steps on the scene. He starts baptizing people like they need purification. He, needs, he starts baptizing Jews like, they're the one, like there's some danger of them being in trouble, like the problem is in here. And then he signifies, he signifies, in case you're wondering about this, any of this, what I'm doing, my ministry, I'm going to use the words of Isaiah. I'm going to use the words of Malachi. And so he claims them for himself and he bears this testimony before the people of Israel. He's saying this wonderful act that's been promised, this act that involves judgment and mercy, judgment and salvation, it's coming. It's coming. Okay, we got through it. (laughs) Are you guys still with me? All right. Now, I would love to spend the next five hours with you all expounding on, I mean, if you read this passage again, which I would encourage you to do, there, I mean, it's just, it's so brilliant. It's just so wonderful. There's so many things you can tease out of uh, the Old Testament. Um, there's more prophecies that I didn't read that are just so wonderful that give, you know, just beauty to this passage. But I'm going to, I'm going to camp out the rest of our time here uh, on this idea uh, that, that this, this testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus in verse 29. It says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's this expectation. You know, the Jews come and ask him, well, Hey, is this, should we be preparing? Is this, is this fantastical day coming? And, and, and John says, Yes, it is coming. And I'm going to tell you who the identity of this Messiah is that's been promised. The identity is he's a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wait, wait, did you say lamb or lion? Like, we need a lion. We in this room are on this side of the cross and we know what happens in the end. We know what is to come, most of us, many of us. They did not know that. And so I want to invite us now in this moment to put ourselves in the shoes of the Jews who are hearing this. This is before the cross, and we hear the Lamb of God. So, the Lamb of God. How in the world is God going to bring this great day of power and might and freedom with a lamb of God. It doesn't add up. The, 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 the reason is, is because 
God has something different in mind than what we would expect, what they were expecting. Put yourself in their shoes even for a moment. This might be fun. When you look at the problems of the world today, and they are plenty, aren't they? Do we need a, a, a lamb? Or, or do you really, when it comes down to it, do you really just want a lion? All right, so I'll let that question hang for a second. I think that's incredible. I, I think that on most days I want a lion. But do I really want a lion? Because the Lord says, it, the problem's not out there. The problem's here. You need a lamb, okay? All right, so we're gonna explore the rest of our time here use, uh, and we're gonna talk about this concept of sin, Ugh. sin, sinning, sinners. When I say that word, it stings our sensibilities, doesn't it? It's kind of, we kind of have allergic reaction to sin. Like when you hear preachers talk about sin, it's like, can you use a different word? The problem is that the biblical testimony says this word is very important. And so we're gonna give it a little bit of importance here because this Lamb of God, whatever it is, it's going to be taking away sin. So what is sin? Um, a, a real basic definition at a fundamental level is sin is the failure to love God and the failure to love one another. It's the failure to love God, it's the failure to love one another, right? Now, everyone in this room and everyone in the world would tell you that we, as a people, humans, we do not love God and we do not love one another like we should, right? Take thousands of years and billions of people and compound that and what do we got? We've got the situation we find ourselves today. It's no wonder we're a mess, right? We don't love. Now, we, we, might, we might call it different things. You know, instead of adultery, we might say entanglement or whatever. You know, instead of perversion, we might say, I was weak. Instead of abuse, we might say, I made a mistake. But it is sin. And the Bible calls sin evil. And he calls those who do evil, evil. The Bible calls sin evil, and those who do evil, he calls them evil. And this is where the majority of us split paths from the testimony of Scripture. We might say something like this. Yeah, I committed adultery, but I'm not evil. That's just something I did. It was a mistake. Yeah, I lie when it's convenient for me, but I'm, I'm not evil. I love animals more than I love people, made in the image of God, but I'm not evil. 
We don't like that one. I treat my spouse, I treat my dog better than my spouse, but I'm not evil. I talk poorly about other people so that I feel better about myself, but I'm not evil. What is evil, folks? The fact is that we are evil, and our evil is dancing around outside of these walls in thousands of lives. It's reverberating and causing all kinds of damage. Our evil is in this room. We cannot escape it. It's, it's who we are. And that stings. Like, I'm, I don't like to be evil. We're like a, a terminally ill patient given the diagnosis. No, 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 no. And so what we do is we say, well, I'm not as evil as, as that. Like if we compare them, I'm not that evil. Or we say, you know what, I'm not evil. It's just that everything else outside is evil and it's pressing on me. Like my, my, you know, my circumstances, other people's evil towards me. I, I'm not evil. Oh, It's a sad but, un, but true statement. It might even be the most scientifically verifiable statement in all of the earth. But there is a sin even greater than our horizontal evil, because we like to talk a lot about horizontal evil. We don't often talk about this vertical evil because it's kind of, it feels weird. But God says that we are all evil and we are all haters of God. We hate God. And you say, I've never hated God. Not once in my life have I hated God. How have I hated God? How are we haters of God? We are haters of God when we, when we make gods of our own liking. We reject the God of Scripture who says, I'm, I'm a holy God. I'm a, I'm a man of war kind of God. And we say, no, 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 no. My God is not that kind of God. My God's a God of love. And for me, love means like you let me do what I want to do. And my God is a tolerant God. He will not bring judgment except for, you know, to those who are intolerant towards me. I don't care about that basket of deplorables. Or when we say something like this, God wants me to forgive my sins. He's a God of mercy. No, 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 no. My God is a God who says, you work hard, you get good things. Cause and effect, that's my God. When we do that, the Bible testifies against us, our own actions and our own hearts testify against us that we are haters of God. We are haters of God. And this is the most heinous sin of all. It is, it is the sin out of which everything else happens and flows. <clears throat> What's interesting to me and very fascinating is that when we begin to make a God in our own image, strangely, 
that God begins to look a lot like us. And he also seems to be a little bit more forgiving of the sins we struggle with, but not the sins of the tribe over there. Yes, yes, I, I uh, am a porn addict. But, but you know what? God is actually more concerned about abortion. That's a, that's a bigger deal to him. Yes, um, yes, I have anger towards people. I hate people. But God is actually more worried about hypocrites or weirdo Christians or homosexuals. You see, for some reason, God all of a sudden now cares more about them and less about me. This God begins to look like me. He likes the things I like. It's very fascinating, but it's very horrible. And so we're in this situation. What are we going to say to the God who spins planets on his fingers like a basketball? To the God who has the power of the stars in his eyes and he looks at us and he says, why did you hate me? And why did you hate the people that I love? And we are going to be without an excuse. We are going to be without an excuse. And so I want to close. Uh, I want to bring a quote up here. Um, Paul Washer says, the most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good. Why is that true? Because if God is good and we are evil, what in the world is he going to do with us? What's he going to do? And in walks Jesus, the Lamb of God. I don't want to skip forward too far in this book. Jesus is certainly more than the Lamb of God, as we will see. But today, let us consider Jesus, this Lamb of God. To those of you out there, out there who are saying, I know, I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. My sin is all over the place. It's every bit a part of me. It's ever before me. It is shaping my past. It's shaping my present. And it's shaping my future, even now. My own sin. I can't escape it. I'm dead. I'm sick. I'm tired. I'm miserable. To you, I want to say... There is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you behold him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how powerful it is. 
I thank you, Lord, that it is such a, an incredible mirror to show us what we are really like. We thank you for the testimony of John here in this passage, John the Baptist, that we need a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, we thank you for your mercy. We pray, God, that we would recognize today that we deeply need a lamb of God. Amen.